Blog Talk Radio. This is Marty Oakley. This is the TS Radio Network. And we are brought to you in coordination with Marcel Reed and Whistleblowers Life. Our guest tonight is Dr. David Moskowitz. And we spoke to him before when we were doing the dialysis advocate shows. And he's going to bring us up to date of what's going on, what has been going on. And if you've got any questions, please text me. Or get me on Facebook, and I'll relay the questions to him. Now, I included at the bottom of the um, the description of the show is um, several ways to get a hold of him. And so those are all live-linked. And what we're going to be talking about also is this group called Genomed.com. What's going on there, what he's doing there. And um, this man is just a wealth of information on kidney disease and and treatment and we're going to be covering a lot of territories so get your pens and pencils out and of course the shows will always be available in archive forever as far as i can figure and we are on every streaming platform out there Uh, we get picked up immediately as soon as the show is over it's loaded right onto all these platforms so if you don't want to come on blog talk radio you can get us on apple spotify um, any number of uh uh streaming platforms out there so look for us there anyway with any no more to say dr moskowitz welcome to the show thanks so much Marty. it's a pleasure to be on yes thank you i like to say i remembered talking with you before when you were talking with uh, arlene mullen on dialysis advocates one of the things that uh, i spoke to you about earlier doctor was the executive order that Trump signed right as uh, Arlene ended her shows and I did find it and um, it, it basically is says nothing and it says everything like most of that stuff does it leaves the door wide open for what they want to do and what we have seen happen since then is the harvesting of organs from dead people many times they're not dead of course they're not usable if they're dead uh, people put on life support when they suddenly decide to pull the plug. It's because they found a uh, a recipient for the organs, and they'll pull the plug then. And, well, they take them down and do surgery first. And um, we find out that organ harvesting is done while the patient is still quite alive because if they're dead, the organs are of no use. It also deals with who gets paid for those organs. But the biggest concern was kidneys. So why don't you lead us off here and tell us what your concerns are about it. I know you you talk about who gets it, uh, who gets kidney disease, who needs dialysis. Um, What could be done to mitigate this? Well, um, my message tonight is that dialysis 
is essentially medical slavery. That uh-huh. everybody who goes on the machine, uh, on the kidney machine, and and may subsequently be rescued by a kidney transplant, probably won't. Uh, everybody who goes on dialysis is a deliberate mistake by the healthcare system that it's been possible for almost 30 years to prevent most dialysis, over 90%, but that nobody in healthcare wants to because it's such a lucrative business. It's $200 billion a year and growing at 4 or 5% annually. And, and oh, wow. what's really going to make it go through the roof is when 300 million diabetics in India and 300 million more diabetics in China are suddenly going to need dialysis because half of them will. That is absolutely staggering to, to even think about it. I guess behind that, doctor, what I'm wondering is what is causing so much problem with the kidneys? What What is happening that all of this disease is coming up? Well, basically aging. Um, kidney failure is an age-dependent disease like everything else, like heart failure, cancer. And um, the, the longer people live, the more likely they are to get kidney failure. One in seven Americans have kidney disease right now. Um, and uh, about half of diabetics, 50% of hypertensives, go on the kidney machine, and then there's a a scattered uh, number of reasons for the remaining 10% to go on the kidney machine. And there's a protocol that's been perfectly fine, perfectly safe, perfectly effective for 29 years now um, to keep diabetics and hypertensive patients with kidney failure from progressing. Uh, in their kidney disease, and that protocol, which I've been using now for about 4,000 patients, the first 1,000 were published 20 years ago, um, that protocol has been deliberately ignored by everybody in healthcare that I've talked to about it. Well, then, you know, when you talk about it, you know, about how it basically has been monetized, and you find that in every aspect of what they call medicine, healthcare, everything, it's all about money. It's not about your health. It's not about what will actually help you. It's all about where is the profit? Where is the profit? And how much are we going to make? Uh, they've commodified us. And we are Absolutely. treated that way. Absolutely. So it's We're just, slaves, basically. Yeah. Yes. We're, we're slaves to yeah. the medical system. Um, we, we, well, I, we're worth about as much as a slave used to be. The people affected are primarily people of color. Uh, the healthcare system is keeping us ignorant um, and powerless. And I think every year since 1994, but especially since my paper came out 20 years ago in 2002, every year uh-huh. that people haven't been kept off the machine is a year of criminality and uh, imposition of medical slavery on the global population. Well, you know, and I think we saw that too, um, this slavery system uh, in this COVID hoax thing. 
where you know they were denying care to people who wouldn't get vaccinated, who wouldn't get tested. Um, they they basically put your life on a string and said, unless you do this, and we can make some money off you. And look at what happened there. You know, they put people oh. on ventilators, and eighty four percent of them died, but they got paid for it. Right. Well, that's the problem. Uh, you know, healthcare is led by hospitals uh, who are the profit centers. And unless you have disease, no money changes hands. So everybody has to have disease. And four trillion a year is not enough for for the health system, most of which is profit-driven. You know, businesses now tell doctors what to do. Right. there's no sense of public health anymore. You're absolutely no. right. No, there isn't. There isn't any concern. I saw this change, um, like in hospice, which used to be such a good Samaritan organization and is now just basically the Grim Reaper. They got $11.5 billion, that's with a B, infusion of cash under Obamacare to go from Good Samaritan to Grim Reaper. And they're killing people faster than... They're just drugging them to death and shooting them out because that bed is worth so much um, on a monthly basis. If they can turn it over three or four times, they make a chunk of money. And um, But that isn't all there is to it. But, it, you know, that's the whole thing. We have even turned death into a profit center. And you can't even die anymore in peace. You just cannot. Uh, they're parceling up your body and selling parts of it. And that's totally unregulated. Um, they can chop you up in all kinds of pieces, ship you all over the place, and the only regulations that apply are on shipping, but not on the fact that you carved up somebody's body. And when I look at this, when I listen to those shows with Arlene and what was going on in this dialysis thing, the idea that if you needed dialysis and there was only one place you could go nearby you, Anyone that worked there could go in and in your file say that you were combative or you did something else wrong, and they could throw you out. And you could never know what the actual charge was or who made it. But now you have to go to the emergency room, wait till you're so sick. It's the same nephrologist, only four to five times the cost. And usually they didn't make it out of the emergency room. I, who came up with this? I want to know who came up with I just don't understand what's happened to us as a society. And it isn't just here in the States. It's globally. There is absolutely no value placed on life. None. It's how much money can we make off of what is there of your life. That's all. Well, I think you're right. I mean, you would think um, that dialysis being so expensive, the developing countries like in India and Pakistan, would um, be the first to be interested in preventing kidney failure. And and I had a little taste of this. I uh, talked to the Minister of Health for Barbados, who happened to be an MD. And he, he came to Miami, where I live. And I took him to lunch and told him about my protocol for preventing dialysis. Dialysis is really big in the Caribbean. Wherever people of West African ancestry um, live, there's like three times more dialysis 
than in white America. And uh, so I told them it'd be easy to prevent uh, dialysis in Barbados for the cost of a couple of kidney machines. He acted like he'd never heard of dialysis, even though he was an oh, MD. Wow. But then a month later, I see that Fresenius or DeVita opened a dialysis unit in Barbados. In other words, oh, wow. there's a lot of proven cases of, of bribery where Fresenius or DeVita will bribe the Minister of Health um, to build dialysis units in a country that needs dialysis badly. And the Minister right. of Health will choose to build dialysis units instead of preventing uh, you know, kidney failure. And that's actually yeah. what's going on in India right now. It, okay. It's uh, an extraordinary, I mean, they'll never be able to afford dialysis in India. There's wow. probably, uh, I think, 15 times as many dialysis patients in in India as we're going to have. We have uh, about half a million, uh, 600,000 on dialysis, another couple of 200,000 transplant patients. India is uh, three times bigger than us, so they're going to have 1.5 million people on dialysis. It costs us Jiminish. costs Medicare 35 billion. It costs us actually 100 billion a year for dialysis. It'll cost them, um, you know, 300 billion. They don't have 300 billion dollars to spend on dialysis, and yet the prime right. minister Modi has absolutely no interest. In in a prevention program, same for the oh. Philippines, same for um, Latin America. Mexico's already got as many people on dialysis as we have, and they can't afford. Wow, this is just incredible. I, why do people of color? Well, it's a great question. So um so this this is really how I got into it in the in the mid nineties. Um I was looking for the African gene to explain why people of African ancestry had three times more kidney failure. And uh it turns out that the African gene is uh is ace and I know you want to talk about that a little bit more. And specifically yes. the, the deletion deletion genotype, which gives you twice as much ACE as if you were insertion insertion or insertion deletion. In other words, there was a, a genotype discovered by a French guy named Pierre Corval in 1987 or so, 88, that gave people, the people who had it, the, the deletion deletion people, had twice as much of this enzyme, ACE enzyme, on the surface membranes of their of their white cells and endothelial cells as um, the other their, the other two possibilities. And the people who had the DD genotype had um, three times more heart attacks, and basically they made more angiotensin two. What this ACE enzyme does is convert angiotensin 1 into angiotensin 2. 
Angiotensin 1 has 10 amino acids on it, which are the building blocks of a protein. And the enzyme just clips off the final two amino acids, like a, a, a clipper on a cigar, just clips them off. Or like a pencil sharpener, clips off the final two. So the 10 amino acid thing, which is inert, angiotensin 1, becomes the highly active 8 amino acid, angiotensin 2 which causes vasoconstriction, it causes sodium retention. It's, it's critical for um, the functioning of the circulation of the blood system. And the people who, um, so, so not only is it required to keep your blood pressure up, but it's also required to retain salt and water, which is critical on the equator. And it's required to, uh, for sweat gland hypertrophy. And so then you ask, why are people of color of color? And um, because it always struck me as odd that if you were black, you actually absorb more, more solar energy than if you were white. If you're white, you reflect right. it. You, you don't heat up as much. Turns out the melanin actually protects your sweat glands. Um, and if you irradiate your sweat glands with ultraviolet B, especially UVB light, you can kill your sweat glands. And that's why it takes, um, this hypertrophy business takes three or four days whenever you go to a hot climate like Mexico. Um, takes you, they tell you to take it easy for the first three or four days so you can get acclimated to the heat. During those three or four days, your sweat glands are actually undergoing hypertrophy mediated by angiotensin 2. And um, so if you're black, if you have color, if you have melanin, you're, you're protecting your sweat glands. Um, you uh, sweat more. They used to, there was a picture, a silver engraving of a slave uh, dealer who was licking the forehead of a potential slave because they had to decide on the west coast of Africa in the slave ports whether to send the slave over on the on the ship or not because the slave represented a huge investment and they didn't want the slave to right. die on the way over. And so there was this engraving of a of a slave trader actually licking this guy's forehead and if it were if it was sweet, if there was no salt in the sweat, that was a good thing. That would mean that he could sweat water and cool off without losing much in the way of salt. If if the sweat tasted salty, um, he'd reject the slave and and uh, not buy him for the, because he'd die on the passage over. And okay. angiotensin too is what mediates the, the sweetness of the sweat. Angiotensin II causes the sodium to be reabsorbed and not released into the sweat. Cystic fibrosis, for example, lets the sweat be very salty, you know, high chloride content, high salt content. Okay. But you'd never pick a, a slave who had cystic fibrosis, but you would pick slaves who were sweating basically pure water, didn't have any salt in it. 
And so okay. the people who got selected for the slave trade were DDs to start with. And there was a a, a hypothesis called, called the Grimm hypothesis because a guy named Clarence Grimm came up with it. <laughs> the people in Africa, his hypothesis was that the people in Africa were more like whites and that what got selected out were these people who um, who were especially prone to kidney failure. In other words, that West Africans were like whites in terms of kidney failure and that the people who got put on the slave boats were specially selected to get kidney failure, three times more likely to get kidney failure. But what we found was that this DD genotype actually was highest in Nigeria. It was 45%, and it it was 35% for St. Louis Black, and it was 25% for white. And so... Um, and and then what people noticed was when Nigerians moved from rural areas to Lagos to the big city and started eating uh, urban Western um, civilization levels of salt, that they developed hypertension and kidney failure uh, just like African-Americans do, uh, do. But that as long as they lived in the countryside where salt was rare and hard to get a hold of, um, they had very little kidney failure. explains why people of color go on the kidney machine more than whites do. And and um, it's, it has to do with um, surviving on the equator. That if you weren't DD, you just, you couldn't sweat well enough, you couldn't retain salt and water well enough to survive for more than a generation or two. In fact, the white soldiers who came from England and Holland and France to man the slave ports on in West Africa on the slave coast would die within a month. It was called the white man's grave. And, the, and they all died of fever. And it used to be thought that they died of malaria. But malaria is not that acutely lethal. What they were dying of was heat prostration, heat exhaustion, because the sun burned out their sweat glands. Then they couldn't sweat anymore, and um, and they couldn't regulate their body temperature, and they were dying with temps of 104, 107. Wow. But so it wasn't malaria that was getting them. It wasn't malaria. In fact, more of the white sailors who were roaming freely uh, above deck, you know, above where the slave quarters were, um, more of them died than the slaves beneath decks. So, wow. you know, in those famous famous pictures of, of white and black bodies, um, so all the black bodies were the slaves who made it to Charleston alive. And there were a few white bodies who were the slaves who died? Maybe ten percent died in the in the Mid Atlantic Passage, Atlantic Passage. But but um, the rate of uh, sailors' deaths was you know forty fifty percent. They were dropping like flies because they didn't have melanin to protect their sweat glands. Wow. 
I've never heard yeah. anybody speak about this before, ever. That's uh, why that slaves could be... were, were used so much. They were, you know, they yeah. were used in the fields because um, they wouldn't die as easily as as whites who worked in the fields. Wow. Wow. This is just, I'd like to say, I've just never heard this before of, of anything related to this, that this could be the underlying reason for many things. Um, so this makes them more prone to dialysis than what? Okay, so here's here's um, here's the connection between uh, having a lot of ACE in your body and making a lot of angiotensin too, and um, having you know twenty first century diseases like high blood pressure, diabetes, kidney failure. So so if you live long enough. Um, if you make it past 40, say, um, and you're ACD, you tend to get uh, high blood pressure. And and then if your pancreas doesn't make quite enough insulin, you'll get insulin resistance as part of the high blood pressure, but your pancreas will poop out and you'll stop making enough insulin, you'll get diabetes. Diabetes and hypertension are now thought to be just extensions of the same metabolic syndrome. Um, really? Both are, yeah, both are due to an underlying excess of angiotensin II because of an excess of ACE, the enzyme. And so um, the reason why angiotensin II kills the kidneys is because um, it, it, the kidney is exquisitely sensitive to angiotensin too, in lots of different ways. How much salt is reabsorbed uh, from the urine depends on angiotensin too. How much the kidney grows, like when you donate a kidney, it's safe uh-huh. to do it because your, your remaining kidney grows by 50% within the first week. And then stop really? growing. Yeah, what makes the kidney grow is actually angiotensin two. However, oh. if your if your signal for growth never ends, in other words, you you have a million nephrons in each kidney, but but you're losing you know a certain percentage per day, then the remaining nephrons have to work harder. And with the increased work comes an increased growth signal. That increased growth signal is angiotensin two. It's exactly the same growth signal that that you you know that you're subject to when you donate a kidney, except if it goes on for longer than the week, um, you actually start to lose kidney cells. Because oh wow! In in every every cell exposed to a growth factor has to make the decision whether to keep growing or to commit suicide. And and wow. well-behaved cells commit suicide and badly beha- behaved cells proliferate and become cancerous. Oh, wow. And, in the, in the, and that's the only choice you have as an adult in internal medicine 
two-thirds of people die from cardiovascular disease, which is essentially self-suicide, um, replacement of the inner lining of blood vessels by bone, by calcified tissue and plaque, um, and heart failure and kidney failure and so on. And the other third of people die from cancer. And both of those are caused by activation, I believe, of ACE in the inner lining of the arteries and the small arteries, the arterial. And so I think this enzyme, ACE, is is activated with each uh, beat of the heart. I think it's a mechanosensor that senses flow and in, in, in blood velocity inside blood vessels and and uh, showers downstream tissue with angiotensin 2. And, and basically, ACE is the clock that measures out your life. And the people who have kidney failure um, have uh, – the clock has run fast on their kidneys. And knowing that, it's easy to slow the clock down with an ACE inhibitor. Okay. Okay. So ACE inhibitors have been around around since 77, 78. And they you hear people, you know, use, yeah, they hear them using that term even in uh, advertising for drugs on TV, which I think is disgusting. But um, they'll talk about ACE inhibitors or. Uh, you know, and all this, and people are, well, what is that? What is that? You know, so you just, and nobody wants to explain well, it, you know, what it is. Yeah. Right. Well, it, for the most part, it's, it's generic now, ACE inhibitors. And so you'll notice that Big Pharma only talks about branded drugs, and nobody explains stuff that's generic. It's too cheap, and, and there's no point, even though I think you can, you can basically make the world dialysis free with a generic ACE inhibitor, namely quinapril. So now, is that a story? Is, of, is quinapril is that a, a quinolone drug? Uh, no, quinapril has the Q U I N part uh, because part of its structure is an isoquinoline, isoquinoline. But it it's um it fooled me too. I thought I thought I knew why quinapril works, but I don't. Uh quinapril yeah. it looks like a tripeptide. The the ACE inhibitors are basically three amino acid um tripeptide looking molecules that plug up the active site of the enzyme. And quinapril happens to look like phenylalanine, phenylalanine alanine proline. And uh, lisinopril, which most people use and have heard of, is phenylalanine lysine proline. So the middle lysine is what gives lisinopril its name. And then really, uh, the structure of quinapril is um, what gives it its name. Turns out, and it turns out to be very similar to the structure of many other ACE inhibitors. There are probably a dozen or so. But for some reason, quinapril at very high doses um, blocks ACE in the kidney and prevents this uh, this apoptosis, this cell suicide signal, 
from being carried out. So I've used quinipril at, at mega doses um, to keep a woman who was told to go on dialysis over four and a half years ago. I've kept her off the machine. Naturally, if I get a hold of people earlier, I can actually reverse kidney failure and they'll never go on dialysis. But with this woman who was told to start dialysis four and a half years ago, um, she'll eventually need to go on, uh, probably in the next few months. But to get her, a, you know, over a four and a half year delay is impressive. Yeah. Well, when people, you know, talk about dialysis and everybody knows about it, but few have any idea of what actually this entails and why it's done. So, uh, you know, this all helps, you know, explain all of that. Uh, can you kind of just, for our audience, explain the process of dialysis, what they actually do? Well, um, dialysis is um, essentially the end of the war. You've lost the war and you um, your kidneys no longer work. There doesn't appear to be any way to resuscitate them, although I haven't really tried. Um, you know, I'd love to see if I could work with a nephrologist who has dialysis patients, see if I could get them off the machine. Um, but for the most part, the kidneys are small and shrunken, and and most nephrologists think that there's just nothing left uh, functionally in these little kidneys, um, and and that the person is either going to be on dialysis for the rest of their life, which uh, basically on average people have life expectancy of three to five years at most on dialysis or they can get a kidney transplant. Problem is, the waiting list for a, for a cadaver kidney from a dead person is uh, five years. So you're just hitting yeah. that five-year mark for your cadaver kidney yeah. when you drop in on dialysis. So as a result, yeah. the same number of people die each year from dialysis as who go on. So 100,000 Americans go on the kidney machine each year, 100,000 die at the end wow. of, you know, their three to five years of dialysis. Yeah. So it's a horrible situation. It's worse than cancer. It's a shorter life expectancy than cancer. And it's very wow. unpleasant during those, you know, during those three to five years that you're alive on dialysis. You can choose to do it in two different ways. One is um, that you hook up to a, a blood machine that washes your blood three days a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday. And you sit there for four hours with a large board needle in your arm, um, drawing blood out, um, pumping it uh, through a filter that washes your blood and then returns it through another large gauge needle into your fistula in your arm. Um, the problem with the fistulas is they they balloon up and, um, you know, you can't hide the fact that you've got one. They can clot off. Probably 80% of hospitalizations and surgeries for dialysis patients 
have to do with opening up clots in the fistula, opening up oh, wow. strictures. And it, it's always an emergency because, you know, the, the fistula, uh, the, the, the graft is noticed to be clotted off just as you have to start your treatment. Then you have to get um, somebody, in, in, an interventional nephrologist or a surgeon to open it up and then get you back on the machine. And with dialysis, every hour matters. And once your potassium starts going up, if it gets too high, your heart can stop. So it's always a crisis situation in dialysis. That's the in-center hemodialysis. Now, what the government has been trying to do in the last few years, uh, starting in, with the Trump administration, is to move hemodialysis into people's homes, which is, to me, is crazy because it's hard enough right. to do in in center dialysis units like Davida and Christina's run, where nurses who are trained to hook you up and recognize problems that happen during the dialysis session can quickly intervene and coolly and calm-headedly, you know, avert avert the situation, which easily leads to death within a few seconds. Like you, the needle can come out, you can bleed to death. These are not, you know, unusual circumstances. Anyway, something like that happens at home, and you've got the you've got the husband on dialysis. You've got his, you know, equally elderly wife taking care of him, and I just don't see how his wife, who was never trained as a dialysis nurse, you can somehow keep track of of her of her wits. Uh, while all this blood is pouring out, you know, how is she going to know to turn off the machine and take out the needles or clamp the tubing? I mean, it, I couldn't do it, I, and I don't see why you would expect a spouse to do it at home. So I think this whole move to in-home dialysis is non-starter and, you know, the opposite of public health, which kind of characterizes how the government deals with this this disease in the first place. Then finally, there's peritoneal dialysis, which is the one I would pick if I had to do it. I'm diabetic. I have the 50-50 chance of needing dialysis. But if I had to do it, I would do peritoneal, which is um, basically putting in sugar water into your belly, letting it dwell for four hours or six hours, and kind of suck out poisons inside your body. And then you drain the sugar water uh, by just lowering the bag down to the floor and unhooking the little plastic tubing um, and letting the fluid drain out into the bag again. And then you clamp off the plastic tubing, throw the bag away and put a new bag in and, and let it drain in and sit. So I find that the gentlest, and um, that's probably what I would do. But but the problem yeah. is once you start dialysis, you can never stop until you get a transplant. Okay. And the problem with that is, um, you know, 100,000 people want a transplant, and only 25,000 get done now. So, you know, wow. you have to wait four or five years. That's just... I don't even know what to to think about that. 
I keep going back to what is the underlying cause for this because there's got to be something that's driving this other than what we've already spoken about. The numbers are too high. They're too high for this to be a random, well, you know. Well, I mean, there are a lot of people with hypertension. There's 60 million in the U.S. And um, 15% of those go on dialysis. There are a lot of diabetics, 20 million. Um, and right. Ten mil- half of them are going to go on dialysis. So um, these are large numbers. Yeah. Wow. Wow. You put out this paper, you said, I think in 2004, about how to, uh, you would be able to end dialysis. Two. Okay. Yeah, 2002, um, 20 years. And yeah, what what was the response to it when you first put it out? Uh, absolutely nothing. You know, I, I called up. I was in St. Louis. I These were uh, St. Louis VA patients. Uh, uh-huh. I got fired from the St. Louis VA for having done this. And I got coverage by the Riverfront Times, sort of an alternative newspaper. Uh, but when the official paper came out in 2002... Uh, the Riverfront Times had moved on. The Post-Dispatch, which was, you know, the official newspaper of St. Louis, ignored it. No black newspaper would pick it up. Um, I thought it would be front page New York Times, honestly. Yeah, um, no kidding. New, New York Times had no interest. And so finally I went to Medicare, who's single payer for dialysis, has been ever since 1972. And I spoke to the medical director, Sean Tunis, and his assistant, Sandy Foote, and their reaction was, well, what do nephrologists think about your paper? And I was honest, and I said, you know, nephrologists didn't like it because it, it would be the end of their salary. And then yeah. Sandy Foote said, well, if they don't like it, we don't like it either. Oh, well, that is Jiminy Christmas. Do you wonder, Dr. Moskowitz, do you wonder how many other things are out there that somebody has solved or come up with a solution to that get shoved to the wayside like this? I mean, I wonder that when I hear these stories, how much is out there that could be cured, if not seriously mitigated, if, you know... Absolutely. Oh, man. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, you know, my take on, on, you know, how we spend taxpayers' money for research um, is that a few golden boys get all the money, and, and it almost is required that the research directions they're pursuing have nothing to do with getting rid of the clinical disease. Because, you know, if you have a status quo that relies on patients to continue getting the same diseases for it to bring in the $4 trillion a year, you don't want your researchers to get rid of the disease. And so I think the NIH has, for various reasons, decided to make Uh, researchers work on essentially make-work projects in 
in model systems, animals and cells that are not translatable to humans in the slightest bit. And all these departments of translational science, translational research, recognize the fact that that of the billions and billions of dollars being spent on research, nothing is translating into lessening the, the suffering of actual patients. And the problem is that these translational medicine departments don't do any better either. Right. You know, I, I think about it, and of course, we always relate things to our own experience. And um, I asked you about Leviquin, and I was put on that here six years ago, seven years ago, along with Cipro at one point, because I had severe sinus infection. They said, oh, that would clear it right up. Well, it didn't, didn't touch it. And um, <clears throat> But I got to looking, some strange things have happened to me behind having taken this medication. So I went right to Johnson & Johnson, who put it out, going through their pages on it. And I find out that it was originally uh, supposed to be a um, deterrent to infection caused by chemotherapy, as it rips through your body, it eats holes and everything, destroys it. And <clears throat> that it was such a dismal failure, they went to the FDA, paid a $5 million fast-track fee, got it put out as a general antibiotic, and it is anything but. This is one destructive medication. Um, it kills the mitochondria in your red blood cells. Uh, in certain people, bug types and genetic deficiencies, it can stop your body from making its own vitamin D to stop that mechanism that does that. Uh, there are several things that can happen. And I got this right off their pages. Never to be prescribed to people over 60 or in coordination with prednisone and or ibuprofen because it can become fatal, which right now they're facing, uh, I think it's 32,000 individual lawsuits and four class actions, and that crap is still on the market. It never did what they said it was going to do. It did a lot of things it wasn't supposed to do, and yet it's out there and they're making money. Now, how has this happened? I, I just don't understand. When did we decide that making a profit was worth more than people's lives. And the FDA, personally, in my opinion, needs to be collapsed to go into re receivership. Somebody get a hold of this place because I think it's a danger to us as a, as a population uh, because this is the, the goal point. You know what I'm saying? is this, this is the approval point for this crap. But there is no, there is no effort, it seems, to actually cure anything. Everything they give you will minimally attack what is supposed to be wrong. But it causes all these peripheral problems that you didn't have before. And it's, oh, well, then take this medication. <clears throat> no, I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to. I'm not going to. And, um, sure. but that, you know, it, I just think it's, I, we can't trust these people, doctor. We cannot. We cannot trust them. Right. Not the drug companies. We cannot trust the FDA. Yeah, go ahead. Well, this may be a good point to talk about genomes. Um, since we are trying to improve outcomes in a safe manner, the, the FDA people I've talked to love our approach because uh, we repurpose drugs instead of making new ones like Leboquin. 
if we could find a use for um, ampicillin or augmentin instead of levaquin, we would we would use that antibiotic instead. So what um, Genomet is based on is uh, genomics. So the reason why I pushed ACE inhibitors in renal failure patients is because of this DD genotype that DD was overrepresented among people with high blood pressure and diabetes, and then it stepped up. There was even more DD in uh, uh, among dialysis patients who had high blood pressure or diabetes. In other words, DD not only gave you the predisposing disease, but if uh, but it also gave you the kidney disease, the complication of it. And okay. So g- given that ACE inhibitors would work and that they've been used already for 10 years in kidney patients, uh, what was wrong? Well, the only thing that could be wrong, 10 or 15 years actually, the only thing that could be wrong was wrong ACE inhibitor being used or wrong dose being used. So I started out trying one of these new ACE inhibitors, Ramipril, which had just come out in 93, and um, and went to a fair amount of trouble to get people Ramipril, used high dose, didn't do a thing. <coughs> so that, then Quinipril happened to be on the formulary, no trouble ordering it at all, just used high dose. Very first patient I used it in um, is creatinine, and we should probably talk about creatinine, went from um, 3.1, and I expected it to keep going up by 10% every month or two. And so I expected it to go from 3.1 to 3.4. The higher it goes, the worse your kidneys are. But instead, his creatinine went from 3.1 down to 2.8. And I'd been taught that creatinines never go down. And so that was the protocol in February of 94. Wow. So anyway, this is just, you know, it's simple. Um, genomic epidemiology or genomics and um, use already existing drugs, repurpose already existing drugs. And um, you know, it's free and fast uh-huh. and safe. It couldn't be any better for translating genomics into better outcomes. And that's what right. I want to do with my company. So we can find, we spent the last 20 years looking for um, for cancer-associated genomic variants. And so we, with a little bit more work, can predict who'll get two-thirds of cancer, um, Uh not counting skin cancers. And uh, the the genes that cause cancer might uh, might be useful to inhibit them even in patients with metastatic disease. So we may have a better treatment, not just diagnosis, but treatment for cancer patients. And then the other thing is that the variants that we have that nobody else has, um, they make much smaller, more manageable problems out of finding disease-associated genes. We should be able to solve any disease. 
And the next one I'd like to go after is dementia. Oh, yeah, please. I would I would ultimately like to repurpose simple drugs like amelorides, uh, which is a, a sodium channel inhibitor, let's say, if sodium channels happen to be associated with dementia, and and just try that in Alzheimer's patients and see if it improves things. Well, you know, the thing I figured out, doctor, is that they don't want them improved. They want them dead. Um, right. Well, one of the that's things, why I'm doing it. I have no money. I have no support whatsoever from anybody. Right. I would imagine. I'm, I know the I feeling. I mean, the patients. And yeah, they want they want me to succeed, but absolutely nobody in healthcare does. No. No. One of the things that really irked me here in the last few years was finding out that, like these clinics. Uh, especially pediatric clinics will have a big sign out there that said, if you're not vaccinated, you can't be a patient here. And I thought, gee, many Christmas, all the material out there on vaccines, why would you as a doctor do this? And come to find out it's because if they have 100% participation, they get a big giant 40000 plus dollar a year bonus from the insurance companies and the pharmaceuticals. And that angered me so badly. We're talking about babies and toddlers here that you would sell them off so you could drive some fancy cars, basically what it gets down to. It's it's like nobody cares anymore. It's all about money. Your health doesn't matter. What this crap does to you that they prescribe, and you find out that comes down from corporate offices of who they've contracted with, you prescribe this, and, you know, because of the profit in it, uh, they don't care if it works for you, if it doesn't, if it kills you, if it doesn't, they don't care. And that's the only thing I can assume is that they do not care. Otherwise, you couldn't do it. You couldn't do it if you were actually looking into these medications. You couldn't force them on people uh, because you know the damage they do. I just, I don't know. I don't know where we go from here. Where do we go? How do we get a handle on this? Well, um, the, the problem is that it's not black, black and white. I mean, with kidney failure, I think it pretty much is. I've been, yes. I haven't seen my career call fail in almost 30 years. Um but the people I talked to have never heard of it before, and and they remain skeptical. In the old days, if if there was some plague, and somebody had an idea for fixing it, and it it didn't look terribly dangerous, then um, the healthcare establishment would jump on the idea and solve the disease. And that's what happened with Jonas Salk and his uh, heat-inactivated polio vaccine. But nowadays, you're right. There, there are a million reasons not to try something. The disease, you know, carries on, carries on bringing in dollars. And, right. Um, and and it, this is, medicine's about the most anti-innovative field that I know of. Nothing changes. And yet they still sell it as if, you know, their whole concern is 
getting you well, taking care of you. And nothing could be my own experience here in the last six months. They don't give a crap. Do not care what no, it's one of the more hypocritical, yeah. uh, extremely hypocritical industry. Yeah. Everything everything just, is based on, on, you know, they say it's for your safety that, yeah, you, right. um, that you can't talk. I mean, so the, the Moderna vaccine, the mRNA vaccines were really shoved down our throats um, without really any proper discussion or testing. Moderna and Pfizer and BioNTech made billions and billions and billions of dollars paid for yes. by taxpayer, taxpayer dollars without taxpayers or even Congress being, um, you know, being asked to vote on it. It was really basically right. one guy, Fauci, who rammed it down oh. everybody's throats. And now we're stuck in this ridiculous cycle of of booster shots for a vaccine that mutates rapidly. I'm sorry, for a virus that mutates rapidly that can never be caught by vaccines made against it, you know, a year or two before <laughs> because it's already mutated to some new form that the, well, the, the vaccine doctor doesn't is, recognize. Well, the thing, they've never identified this virus. They've never isolated it. They did a computer mock-up of it, what they thought it was, but they have never. So how can you get a mutation on something you couldn't identify to begin with? That's what I want to know. Um, They're using a PCR test that cannot detect viruses, and they had to come out and admit that more than a million people had tested positive for COVID that never had it. Uh, And that they keep rolling. And Fauci, they won't get me started on that little weasel. Um, and him resigning, like he did, was to keep them, to make sure he could keep all his benefits, which are hefty and huge. If they had started a prosecutorial system against him while he was still sitting, he would have lost all of his benefits. So they let him run to the end of December and resign, step out of office, and now they can go after him, but he can keep all of his goodies. And we paid for all of it, every bit of it. Right. There were guys. There was a guy named Bob Cadillac who had been involved in the first SARS epidemic in 2003, who I thought was a good guy. But then he got a almost a billion-dollar contract from the government to work in a private company to manufacture vaccines. Oh, wow. That was pretty corrupt. No, I think the vaccine story will, will go down in history as one of the more corrupt, unscientific, anti-public health measures ever get forced down the world's population's throat. And the idea of these little masks and economic shutdowns and, and, um, you know, quarantines, which were first used in the 14th century, I mean, they could offer until the vaccine came out all we could do was shut down our economy and lose, you know, trillions of dollars a day, lose jobs. It was an atrociously handled situation. And it continues to be potentially, um, you know, politically divisive. The Democrats have embraced the vaccine stupidly. <laughs> and, the, you know, the one reason I would vote for a Republican now 
is because they oppose the vaccine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just, um, I don't know anybody that's actually for them. I've had people say, well, I had to take it. No, you didn't have to take it. You just did take it. And Well, they wouldn't let me do this, and they wouldn't let, there's nothing I want to do so badly that I'm going to be vaccinated. There's nothing. And um, yeah. I don't want any of my children or grandchildren vaccinated. But it just, this whole scam, this hoax, uh, and this guy pulled it off, and Fauci even admitted the masks did no good, and they knew it. And yeah. I never put one on. I refused. I refused. I refused. And um, But did you notice, doctor, that all the little mom-and-pop stores and everything had to close? But Kmart right. and Walmart got to stay open with hundreds of customers a day. They got to stay open, and that wasn't a problem. Home Depot's open. I mean, come on. All the big corporate stores got to stay open, but it was all the little mom-and-pops, your local economy. That got destroyed. That's who drives your local economy. It isn't Walmart. It's all your little right. privately owned businesses. And um, that's well, they who they do. went after. This whole thing was a setup. It was a setup. It was to destroy our local economies. It was a <clears throat> redistribution of wealth. It absolutely pitted the public against each other, which is, you know, the old divide and conquer. And, uh, People just bought into this hook, line, and sinker, or people like me that said, wait a minute, this isn't even making any sense. And um, don't tell me you, you know, I'm threatened with something you can't even isolate. And, um, well, you think it's there. I don't care what you think. Show me where it is. They never could. Still haven't. Right. Well, here's an example of, uh, of the kind of stuff I like doing. So in March 2020, I uh, was starting to get my own covid patients and um came up with quercetin as a way of inhibiting mast cells and i don't know if we talked about it but but i eventually published a paper on my first patient who was basically dying he's an 18 year old kid with lung disease had has as had had asthma but um had chest burning and symptoms that he never had before in his 14 years of asthma. And I really thought I was going to lose him. And he got quercetin and got better within 12 hours. Well, 24 hours, he was better to baseline. I mean, 36 hours, he was completely normal. And I went ahead and used quercetin for another couple hundred patients. And for the most part, people really did well quickly with mm-hmm. quercetin and so then you know it was quercetin versus these unknown untested vaccines and i was just mm-hmm. arguing you know instead of dying while you're waiting for right. a vaccine why not try quercetin and i got kicked off LinkedIn and uh kicked off twitter and Gee, kicked off facebook yeah, it was just a lot of censoring, a lot of censorship. Wow. And that was, you know, that was news to me, uh, that a scientific discussion could turn into criminality and censorship. Yeah. Censorship. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the thing mm-hmm. is, my thoughts on that is, if there's no merit to what you're saying, people are pretty savvy. They can pick it right up. And there's always going to be that core group of people that will bite into anything. They've always been there. They always will be. 
and but the idea they were so so determined to squash anything that went against this contrived hoax that they had going. That's how flimsy right. it was. Yeah. Go yeah. ahead. Well, well, if the dialysis story ever breaks, I'm sure the the um, controversy will be nothing compared to the names that get called, you know, going up against the nephrology community. Yeah, yeah. But I, I find them are. heartless sons of bitches. Yep. It just... I mean... Have you ever been inside a dialysis unit? No. I mean, no. it's the closest I can think of to a concentration camp. Do You see these poor, miserable people. You know, they're not moving. They've got their arms out on a, a board, you know, with these giant gauge needles, 14 gauge needles, two of them in each in each forearm, and they they are so miserable. They are so unhappy, and they can't move. Wow. Wow. I can't even imagine it. Everybody's waiting for who's going to die, because every week somebody dies in the unit, you know, gets coded. Wow. It's really looking around. Who's going to be the next yeah. one to pop off? Yeah, it's I, I just experience. It sounds like it. It truly does. I just I don't know. Um, you know, when you think of all of this, the the scope of things here. Uh, we've got a health system that is anything but a health system, and it's all profit driven. I mean, there isn't anything you can do anymore. The money isn't the first and only objective. And if they have to lie to you, cheat you, poison you, kill you, whatever, to get it, they'll do it. And I don't understand that. Well, I'll tell you, you would think, um, I used to think that a national health service would be the answer. But for dialysis, um, Medicare is already a single payer. I mean, it's already the National yeah. Health Service for dialysis, and it's not right. just—it's not just for um, profit that people want. It's salaries. They want to keep their salaries, and right. so the bureaucrats at CMS don't want to end dialysis because they don't want to cut seven percent of their budget. They don't want to cut seven percent of their jobs. Everybody is just basically selfish. And as long as the story is kept secret, everybody can, you know, peacefully go and happily go about their work taking care of the concentration camp prisoners. Yeah. Wow. Wow. But, you know, that's like uh, that scenario you're painting there is like what nursing homes are now. You know, they aren't nursing homes for the most part. There might be one or two good ones out there somewhere. But they basically are just concentration camps. Yes. Yes. And the abuse and neglect. I worked worked nursing homes for a while, and I I wrote a note that somebody was drugged, overly drugged, and to lighten up on on the drugs, and she wanted to go home. 
and the director called me into his office and made me tear and he tore up the note in front of me and made me write another one that said that she was appropriately drugged because oh, the last thing they want is uh, to lose the bed. You know, seventy grand right. a year for everybody yep. in that in that facility. Yep. And they make it impossible for anybody to get out. And if, I, if you write something like they're overly medicated, they'll replace you with a doctor who plays ball. Yes. Yes, they will. And hospice is the same way. Um, <laughs> they've got doctors on board that will do the futility of care. And then you go into um, the treatment after that, what that's called. They pull all medical treatment whatsoever. And under Obamacare, food and water got reclassified, not as a human right, but as medical treatment. That's the first thing they pulled, and they start the drugging. And they use Haldol, Ativan, and morphine. They call it a ham sandwich. They think that's funny. And um, they start the process. They murdered my sister three years ago, May. Four days. Took Mm. took her out in four days. Because she had dementia, uh, but we have we have a show, um, doctor, on Wednesday nights. Usually every other week, Marcia Joyner. It's called Betrayed by Hospice. That is uh, the stories on there. The documented everything. I insist everything is documented um, of what they did to these elderly people in hospice. All this is is government sanctioned murder. That's all it is, and. Um, I, no, no hospice, no hospice. But it just, well, how did we get to this? I want to know, how did we get to this? It's like the country's lost its soul. It's, I, I just well, don't yeah, I mean, basically, we'd still have polio every summer. If the, if the health care acted towards polio, like it uh-huh. has been acting towards dialysis. You know, Jonas Song, nobody would have ever heard of him. Right. And, or saving. And we'd still have polio every summer. We'd still have March of Dimes, you know, raising money to try to find a solution. But we just, we wouldn't be able to get there. Mm. Something happened in the 60s. I think what happened yeah. was that the nonprofits realized that they were going to go out of business if they solved their disease. And so none yeah. of the nonprofits that I got grant money from, the American Diabetes Association, the Missouri Kidney Program, neither of those two would help me publicize my 2002 paper. Even though they Jeez. gave me the grant money, to find out the solution. They, the, the National Kidney Foundation said, oh, we don't want to get involved with a company. Genome, oh, well. how could they possibly get involved with a company? And the ADA said um, something similar, I think. And the Missouri Kidney Program, the guy who, who ran it, um, one of them was a nephrologist. And he wasn't about to publicize that the dialysis units were unnecessary, could be prevented. Wow. 
So the nonprofits are just as complicit as everybody else in the system. They really want to keep their jobs. They want to keep raising money for their disease. We don't stand a chance, do we? (laughs) Well, I, I think the best thing is to just keep keep getting the word out and eventually people are going to hear and um, nowadays with podcasts and social media and stuff there's a chance to get your voice heard in the old days you know you could talk to your buddies and that's as far as it would go but nowadays there's this hope that somebody in, in Pakistan will hear you and actually, I do have a guy in Pakistan, a nephrologist, who's, who splits his time between there and the U.S., who uh, is going to try out my protocol in his kidney patients. So that's the first oh, wow. time in 30 years that I got somebody to at least try to replicate my data. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's better than nothing at all. And it's, you know... Uh, I just, you know, you'd think they'd be excited and they'd jump on it and think here's an opportunity to change all of this and provide for relief for these people. And and it's just the exact opposite. You're messing with my money. <laughs> yep. Uh, Lord, yep. please yep. don't ever let me go there. And uh, But it's like you said earlier, you know, you've got no money. And we're the same way here. And, you know, the thing about doing internet radio like this and they keep wanting to call us podcasters <laughs> we're no different than any other radio station we're all over right. the place you know so we have for more reach but what galls them about it and they're trying to find a way to shut us down or a large number of us um, what galls them about it is we are taking audience away from mainstream media and massive amounts of audience away and um, I was questioned one time uh, when I was still in Minnesota by a senator, and he said, how do you account for that? And I said, because people don't want to hear a bunch of BS. I said, they want oh, to know yeah. what's going on. What, yeah, and I said, they don't get that from mainstream media. And I said, and if I want to listen to news about movie stars and stuff, there's channels on here that you call podcasters that go all over that. That isn't my interest. I'm interested in politics. I'm interested in what they're doing. I'm interested in what's actually happening. And I don't want to hear a bunch of BS. And uh, But that's that's the whole thing, boy. They've just, they've hung themselves with this crap. You know, it, they're not reporting anything, but they're going to find a way to shut us down. I can tell you they've used the Twitter thing. And um, I got bounced off of something here a while back for... Uh, content they didn't like my content i can't even remember what it was but um i don't worry about that stuff uh, because the audience is too big it's just too big and um they can't do anything about that (laughs) well i have i have never met anybody who wants to go on dialysis yeah no let, let them try to shut me down any publicity positive or negative can only help. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And the more you keep talking about it, it becomes, um, what do I want to say? 
uh, instead of something that, you know, people go, what? What's that about? It's like, oh, there's some more about that. And yeah. um, it builds the audience. It really does. The more you talk and the more you get out there, the more people grab onto it and become interested in it. And uh, I know when I first started in guardianship, there was little to no interest. But now it's a huge thing, and um, not on account of me necessarily, uh, but because a lot of more people then came out and spoke out, and we just kept speaking out. <laughs> and that's what's going to have to happen here. Uh, we're going to have to get you on air more often. You ought to do a regular show with me, maybe once a month, once every two weeks, and just update. Yeah, well, you can do an hour sure. if you'd be interested sure, in that. Sure okay, if we can do I that. Mean, I, it's a little bit like the abolitionist movement. You yes. Know, that, that yes. It, so uh, they really, I mean, so slavery was abolished in 1812 or something in England, mm-hmm. and the abolitionist movement picked it up in the U.S. and, you know, kept it alive for the next 40, 50 years. And yeah. eventually it came to head. And I really think this, um, you know, re- revolutionizing healthcare, turning it from a for-profit, essentially, um, it's an undertaker profession right yes. now. Turning yes. it from a, from undertaking to actually preventing disease is possible now <laughs> with the science, with genomics. It's just that the yeah. business has prevented it from happening for at least the last 30 years. And um, I, I hope within the next few that we can completely change it around. Yeah. I know I uh, interviewed Barry Tubb from Alabama here. It's been two years ago, and this is when CBS had taken on the whistleblower show. But, of course, it was done with the... Um, uh, bend towards making it look like the only reason people blew the whistle was for money. The the people who blow the whistle rarely, rarely um, see any money. It's all taken by yeah. the attorneys. And uh, right. I mean, so yeah, they don't. I mean, Barry had been a, a mortician for oh, his whole life, actually, and um, he started noticing that his people were brought into the mortuary that things like bones and tendon were missing. And he went to the owner of the place and said, hey, you know, and they said, well, just put a piece of uh, plastic piping in there so it looks like it's still there. And he was telling a friend about it, and he said, you need to go to my friend at the FBI, which he did. They went after this place, and here they were making a fortune, stripping down bodies and selling bone and tendon and whatever else they could uh, without anybody's permission or knowledge. They fire him. He, He blew the whistle. And they fired him over it, and uh, but it ended up he can't get a job anywhere. He can't, you know, nothing. And that $42 million settlement, he never saw a penny of it. And, mm. um, you know, but this is what happens to whistleblowers. But it still, to this day, can't get, a, can't get work. And mm. um, he was mowing lawns and cleaning gutters to keep his family supported. <laughs> but... Uh, you know, this stuff goes on all the time. They do it, but I, like I say, we've turned into a nation of ghouls. Uh, we've turned into a nation that, that there's an unholy interest in the money that can be made off of death. 
and what can mm-hmm. you do with the parts, what's left over, you know? Um, it's it's creepy to think about it, uh, well, but that is with, true. Starting with the starting with the military. I mean, we yes. we spend more money on on weapons than the the next twenty eight countries, and twenty seven mm-hmm. of them are our allies. Yeah, yeah. I'm always at. I mean, never forget uh, Hillary Clinton in 2007 was speaking at, uh, uh, I can't remember what it was, but she was telling these people that the country was in, had 95 or 94 armed conflicts going that the American public knew nothing about. Uh, what? Oh, that's true. <laughs> yeah, because, yeah, because of the celebrity <laughs> channels. Yeah. We are a constant war. I mean, we, we run the world, and no citizen has a clue. About the extent nope. of the of the stuff that we're involved in, and that's been exactly. the case for years. Yeah, it's just um, I just think it's terrifying to think about it. I always talk about I, I was living up close to St. Cloud, Minnesota, and uh, I was in the Walmart store there with a friend of mine who's a bounty hunter, big old Greek girl, and um, we were in the makeup aisle the one day, and this Somali woman came down there. They have they St. Cloud gets every year what they call a Somali dump, and that is a thousand to two thousand Somalis are brought in and unceremoniously dumped out. And mm-hmm. this Somali woman came up behind me, big white aisle for cosmetics because it's busy, and rammed me with her cart and was motioning at me to get out of her way. And I'm telling her I'm looking at stuff here, and she rammed me with that cart a second time, and my friend gets upset. Picks up, literally picked up one of those big heavy carts and slung it out the end of the aisle. She said, you got enough room now. And she was this woman screaming, I hate America. I hate Americans. I said, then what are you doing here? And she said, we have no choice. And I said, what? She said, they round us up like animals and load us on those planes and bring bring us here and just dump us out. Well, I asked someone who would know about this, whether it was true or not. He said, oh, yeah, they do that all the time. Because he said Somalia is just absolutely a, a bottomless oil well, and they want those people off that land, and they were going to nationalize, like Gaddafi did, the oil profits, and they wouldn't let the cartels in. So they didn't want a big bloodbath either, so they just decided to depopulate by rounding them up and shipping them other places, And hmm. uh, but they still have armed conflicts going on there. But, I mean, we do this kind of stuff all the time. And I keep telling people, did you ever notice their kids never go to war? Their kids are never in harm's way. Why are yours? Why are yours? Hmm. Well, well, you can't have, why can't you? You know, why can't you? But it just, I don't know. Smedley Butler. Go ahead. Smedley Butler. This guy, General Smedley Butler, he has the most amazing yes. first name. He exposed the banker's plot in 1933. He yeah. wrote a book about uh, War is the Racket. He was the most highly decorated soldier, I think, in the Army. And um, he he actually led the Veterans March, I think, for um, for pay. 
which bonus pay, which they'd been promised in World War One, but they hadn't gotten. Uh-huh. And, and so he led it. That was the the demonstration that um, MacArthur and Eisenhower used machine guns to to take down these veterans on the march. Anyway, Smith oh wrote a book. He wore his racket. He'd been in Honduras and Nicaragua, in Haiti and Dominican Republic, and he was talking about all these armed conflicts where his goal, his mission was to back up United Fruit and Dole and American corporations and that there was nothing honorable about what he was doing. Right. He was just a lackey of these U.S. corporations. Right. I mean... Yeah, I've heard about uh, that, so uh, I'm, I need to get it and read it. Yeah, he was great. And I mean, this is, and then it got forgotten, I guess, in the lead up to yeah. World War II. But wow. uh, we just keep reinventing the wheel over and over. Yes. Rediscovering yes. that the system, you know, <laughs> pretends to be for us, but is actually against us. We yes, keep it getting is. snookered. Year after yeah. year, we get snookered. I've told somebody here the other day it's hard to comprehend that our own government hates us and fears us so much they want us dead and and, it, and they do they do and it's just I don't know and they're trying to find out find all kinds of ways to get it done so you can't point the finger at them and say it was you but <laughs> we're down here to just a few minutes left doctor uh, I want to talk to you more maybe I'll call you tomorrow or the next day about possibly doing a regular show I think that would be sure, tremendous be and uh uh, we'll get to that. To everybody that tuned in tonight, thank you so much. Um, I hope you enjoyed this. I know I did. And um, we'll be back on Friday with our show on guardianship, as always. And other than that, all I can tell you is please try to enjoy what's left of your life because I'm trying to enjoy mine. Doctor, thank you for being my guest. And we will be my back. Greatest, on- my greatest pleasure. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Good night, everyone.